believe it's been too long since we gave a shout out to the patrons we have who pay all our bills on this show. Yeah, way overdue. So a huge thank you to these kind listeners who donate to us monthly on our Patreon account. Thomas, Elaine, Krista, Douglas, and Adam. Austin, Jonathan, Melissa, Kayla, and Corin. Megan, Mark, Sarah, Lynn, and Tiffany. Bradley, Laura, Harry, Wendy, and Justin. Mickey, MP Banks, Vicki, Molly, Lisa, and Mary Beth. We've been doing this for three years now, and Paula and I haven't used a penny of those donations to so much as buy a lunch. Every cent has gone into the podcast fees, research, subscriptions, website costs, and equipment. So literally, that list we just read off, plus the many generous fans who have sent us donations through PayPal, they are the whole reason we still exist today and the reason you're getting this episode tonight. Sounds like a perfect time to get on with the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. There is no featured Ohio musical guest tonight. Paul is preparing for vacation and just ran out of time. So consider this more of a special 10-minute mystery, but it's a good one. I'm your co-host, Steve Yutter, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, are you a fan of Phantom of the Opera? No, I've never really seen it. You Well, then it's not that you're not a fan. You just have missed out. Right, right. You've got to check it out. Well, I like to think of tonight's story as Ohio's version of Phantom of the Opera. It takes place in a theater in the 1800s. There are two men at odds over a pretty ballet dancer. It culminates in a brutal stabbing that takes place behind stage during a performance. And the killer slips away before anyone can catch him, leaving behind nothing but whispers about what might have happened to him. Sounds like all the required elements of a phantom story. Yeah, yeah. here's one more. The phantom is about a deformed man living in France. And the performance that was going on when our backstage murder takes place was about a deformed man living in France. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this one. Let's set the mood first. Cincinnati, 1846. The population of the Queen City had grown to 115,000 people. And back then, live theater was everything. There were no video games, no TV to watch or movies to go to, not even really professional sports with the exception of maybe boxing or horse racing. If you wanted to be entertained, a night of fun and laughter or tears and emotion or glam and glitter, you went to live theater. Theaters typically had a stable of local talent who were on the payroll, but key characters were often played by nationally acclaimed performers who came to Cincinnati from all over the country, the rock stars of their day. By all accounts, Cincinnati loved its theater life. There were several in town, but the one we're concerned with tonight is Shire's Garden, Shire's Garden was part of a unique amenity that history books call an amusement resort. Its owner was an entrepreneur and English aristocrat named William Shires. He purchased the block fronting 3rd Street downtown 
from vine to race, from a local judge who ran into some financial difficulties. Shires opened a restaurant and a hotel in the judge's mansion. It was called Burnett House. And next to this, he put in a unique showcase whose centerpiece was the theater. Author Mary Owens described this property in her book, Memories of the Professional and Social Life of John E. Owens. She wrote, The garden occupied an entire block. It was planted with shade trees and beautified with flower beds. Interspersed through it were ice cream booths and places of refreshment. And in the center stood a pretty frame theater which was ably managed with a good stock company supporting stars during the regular season. And so Shire's Garden advertised itself as the People's Theater, a place where Cincinnatians could gather and enjoy dinner at Burnett House and follow it up with a show at the lovely theater. On July 28, 1846, when our story takes place, Shire's Garden was featuring the drama of Esmeralda and the deformed Quasimodo, apparently an alternative name for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it featured the acclaimed Mrs. H. Lewis playing the title role of Esmeralda. In those days, married women typically lost their first names in the press and were only recognized by their married surname. At the same show, patrons were also to be treated to a solo dance from a popular local cast member named Mrs. Cook. Again, history did not preserve her first name for us. But Mrs. Cook was the chief ballet dancer and well-known to Cincinnati's theater crowd. She's the ingenue in our story. An 1881 Inquirer article looking back at this incident said this of Mrs. Cook. Her pirouettes and ballet dancing between the play and farce were quite an attraction to the audiences that filled the parquet, dress circle, and balcony of the cozy little theater. Apparently, in this performance, Mrs. Cook also had a talking role. I mention it now because that's important to our story. Mrs. Cook was married to Aquila Cook. He was the 26-year-old treasurer of Shire's Garden. Aquila Cook stood five feet, five inches, and had a slim build. He had dark red hair that curled and a face covered in freckles. Newspapers described him as, and here's a quote, having a small chin and a down look when addressed. So take that to mean what you will. He also had a habit of wearing a hat inclined low over one eye. It was said Aquila Cook could be quite attentive of his wife, both jealous of the attention she got from other men, but also overly protective. And on this night, he was going to have a head-on collision with Jack Reeve. Jack Reeve was an Irish comedian who was part of the theater's cast, but also served as the stage manager. As the stage manager, one of Jack's jobs was to be a prompter, This meant standing in the shadows at a stand with a script of the performance. And if cast members forgot or were too slow to deliver their lines, he would prompt them from his hidden post offstage. 
the night of July 28th, Jack Reeve had to prompt Mrs. Cook one too many times. As Mrs. Cook was exiting the stage after the first act, Reeve told her, Why the devil don't you study your part? Witnesses suggested he was using his usual jocular tone with her, but she was in no mood. She replied, You had better not insult me anymore, for if you do, I'll slap your face. As she continued past him, Reeve said, Are you in earnest? And yes, I guess that's how people talked in 1846, because this conversation was recorded word for word in the newspaper. Mrs. Cook was upset enough about the admonishment that she went to her husband, who was at the ticket office, and complained. Aquila became enraged and took that complaint to the top, a guy named Mr. Morris. Aquila left the ticket office and marched straight to Mr. Morris's room, where he found Mr. Morris lying on a sofa. Mr. Morris was surprised to see him there in the middle of the show and asked what he wanted. Aquila started by telling him how much the theater had taken in that night, then added, You had better tell that prompter of yours to keep his mouth shut or he'll go out of here some night with his guts out. Morris made no reply, and when it appeared he wasn't going to be taking any action, Aquila left Mr. Morris's room and went straight to the stage, where Jack Reeve was standing at his prompter stand, focusing on the performance. You have been insulting my wife again, Aquila told Reeve. Don't bother me, Reeve said. I'm busy now. To this, Aquila said, I'll learn you, and he produced a dirt knife, also known as a thrusting dagger, and he pierced Reeve's chest. Mrs. Lewis, the star of the show, was in her dressing room at the time. Reeve made a few steps toward the door of her dressing room, crying out, For God's sake, let me in! I am stabbed! I am murdered! Mrs. Lewis walked out and caught Reeve as he collapsed. Reeve lingered for a few minutes, the blood gushing from his chest, and then he died. The newspaper didn't say anything about the audience, but even without a falling chandelier, as in the actual Phantom story, I have to imagine the play at Shire's Garden came to a crashing end, since the leading lady was now covered in a dead man's blood. As for Aquila Cook, he never missed a beat. Clearly, he had quickly figured out a plan for his escape. He walked through the back door of the stage and went to the ticket office screaming, Fire! Fire! A Mr. Smith was inside the office counting money. Where's the fire? Mr. Smith said. In the back of the building, Aquila said excitedly. Mr. Smith grabbed whatever paper money was in his reach and ran out. Left alone, Aquila then scooped up whatever was left, mostly silver money, and fled the building. Of course, there was no fire, and it took a few minutes for everyone to figure out what had happened and who was to blame. But by then, Aquila was gone. Officers peeled out after him, hurrying to the home of his mother-in-law, Eliza Carnahan. That's where he and his wife lived. All they found was his shirt, which he had removed. It was lying next to a hydrant of running water. The Hamilton County Sheriff, John Gahard, posted a reward for $100. 
and Reeves' friends chipped in another hundred, extremely generous for the time. But it was for naught. Aquila had left Cincinnati, never to be seen there again. That's not to say Aquila was never heard from again. I found one source that said he was not content to escape without a word, and he wrote a letter to the Cincinnati Press boasting about having fooled the police. But I couldn't find that letter, so I can't share the contents. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. As the years went on, Cincinnatians loved to talk about where they thought he ended up. One popular theory was that he'd made his way to Texas, where, in 1846, outlaws were welcomed. It was perceived as a sort of resort for the criminal element. Others thought he might have made it to New Orleans. This was credible enough that New Orleans authorities put a story in the Times-Picayune telling everyone to be on the lookout for a man matching Aquila's description. But if this theory was true, they wouldn't have had a big window to catch him in because the legend went on to say that Aquila joined the crew of a ship in New Orleans Harbor and went on to become a pirate. There was a third theory, and this one made it to the Daily State Sentinel in Indianapolis, Indiana. Aquila was originally from Indiana and had lived in Indianapolis. He was well-liked there, so the town had an interest in his whereabouts. In 1853, seven years after Reeves' murder, the newspaper shared an unconfirmed report that Aquila had been killed in a fight in San Francisco. There was one thing that kind of backed up the idea that he ended up in California. His dad was John Cook. That was the first Indiana State Librarian, a post that actually put him in the news on occasion. And I found a story in 1851 that said John Cook had moved to San Diego, California, and had just been made a member of that state's legislature. So I couldn't help but wonder if John picked up and moved to California to be nearer to his son. But then I found a news item that calls into question whether Aquila died in 1853. That's because 25 years after that, 
There was a notice in an Indiana newspaper asking Aquila and his brother Lorenza to come forward to get their late father's estate. And I got to think, if Aquila was killed in California and his dad was living there with him and knew, he wouldn't have still had Aquila listed in his will 25 years later. So I guess we'll never know. Now, I got to tell you something else about Aquila Cook. It's a little unexpected aspect of his life, completely unrelated to him being a murderer, but it causes his name to show up in some history books. Growing up in Indiana, Aquila's best friend was a boy named Lou Wallace. Aquila and Lou were rascals. Their favorite pastime was avoiding school and looking for trouble, like raiding gardens, pulling bell ropes, and just creating general havoc throughout the countryside. In their late teens, the pair were determined to create their own Huckleberry Finn adventure. They had read about the Alamo, where those freedom fighters in Texas bravely sacrificed their lives trying to defend a fort. And they decided to go join the Texan Navy. They commandeered a skiff, loaded it with supplies and a couple of rifles, and pushed offshore, floating down the White River that flows through southern Indiana. Their destination was New Orleans. Lou's grandpa figured out what they were up to. He found himself a constable, and the two men caught up with the boys a few miles downstream and took them back home. So it was a few years after this that Aquila moved away to Cincinnati, married a dancer, and murdered a man. But it's what happened to his best friend that causes Aquila to show up in some history pieces. His buddy, Lou Wallace, spent many years trying to settle down. His wealthy dad, David, even refused to give him money for a long time, believing his son wouldn't grow up till he was forced to make his own way. And just as his dad predicted, Lou figured it out. He matured, became an orator, an artist, an inventor, a musician. He joined the Union Army, became a major general, and led his troops to Civil War victories in Donaldson and Shiloh. He was one of the military judges assigned to try the conspirators who killed Abraham Lincoln and attacked other Washington, D.C. officials that same night. And after that, he served as ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. None of those are the reason that you would even know him. You would know him because he also became an author. In 1880, he wrote an epic religious novel that became one of the biggest literary successes of the 19th century and one of the biggest blockbuster films of the 20th century. Lou Wallace wrote Ben-Hur, a book that later became a 1959 movie featuring Charlton Heston. That movie, by the way, is still tied with Titanic and Lord of the Rings for having won the most Academy Awards at 11. So, while Aquila Cook may have remained just a footnote in Cincinnati's colorful past, his influential and pivotal childhood with Lou Wallace is what has him popping up in biographies and other 19th century history books. 
That's it for tonight, folks. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com, and we'll see you here next week for another Ohio Mystery. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.